Hello, Sunshine. I'm Alexi Lawlison. Welcome to the State of the Union podcast, where we look at the beautiful game on and off the field through the lens of red, white, and blue colored glasses. This week, we'll be talking, well, we're talking Newcastle, both on and off the field and following up on a little bit of a conversation we had uh, last week. Uh, we'll be talking about Major League Soccer, and we'll take a trip around Europe. We'll be talking about Squid Game. We'll be talking about Brittany Murphy. We'll be talking about all sorts of different things that are going on when it comes uh, to the uh uh, the world of soccer, including the end of the window. So we'll put a button on that when it comes to the uh, international window and so much more. But first, joining me as always, my friend, my colleague, my guiding light, David Mossy, a soccer savant and a Fox soccer researcher and writer extraordinaire. Mossy, first off, how are you? And welcome back. You are back on the show. For those that listened last week, we had uh, Stu Holden fill in uh, as as best as he possibly could uh, and fill those big shoes of uh, David Mossy. He was off uh, on the East Coast visiting his family. Welcome back. How was your trip? Uh, the trip was excellent. Uh, I can see the disappointed faces around the studio at my return. Everybody <laughs> loves Stu. And uh, in lieu of last week's pod smashing all our download records, uh, the term Wally Pipped has been officially changed to David Mossy. <laughs> I, I missed you. I want you uh, back. Uh, we did have a, a good week. We're always going to have a, a good week, especially when the U.S. national team is played. So, I mean, you can I think you can fall on that side and, and uh, recognize that with the U.S. playing and all the attention and a lot of the, um, the general uh, sports world turning their head, uh, maybe for one of the few times to uh, to soccer because of the qualification, the possible qualification. I think that's one of the reasons uh, why it happened. But you had a good time with your family, right? Everybody good back there? Excellent. Everybody's doing great. Did you do anything or you just kind of sit around, and hang out and talk and eat and just spend time? Uh, I went to the Guggenheim, Ooh, uh, which was you, terrific. Mr. Smarty Pants. Um, what did you well, see there? Is there anything that stood out in terms of the... Uh, uh, there was a Vasily Kandinsky, Kandinsky uh, exhibit. I'm, I like to think of myself as an art buff, but I think I just butchered that. Would that be painting or? Uh, uh, yes, yes. Sculpt? Okay, it's painting. Um, uh, I went to the Greenwood Cemetery in Brooklyn where a lot of famous people are buried. Like who? Who's buried there? Uh, Leonard Bernstein, okay. uh, Boss Tweed. Okay. Um, I went to the French Cultural Embassy uh, where they have a bookstore that sells French books. So I bought some French books to continue my my practicing there. I'm actually reading one right now. So uh, yeah, and a lot of dinners with the family, walking around Central Park. So it was excellent. Great time to be in New York. Um, when you go to this cemetery, is it a cemetery that kind of understands that people are going there to see the famous graves? Do they, I mean, do they give out like a pamphlet that says this is where everybody is or do you have to do that ahead of time? I mean, no, I yeah, guess it's a do. functioning, <laughs> I don't know how much of a functioning cemetery. No, yeah, they do. Yeah, there, there are lots of cemeteries around the world that have taken on this sort of tourist destination kind of uh, Sleepy Hollow is another one that I've been to recently. When we were in Paris a couple of years ago, I went to That's Père right. Lachaise. And yeah. so, yeah, it's uh, that type of place. Yeah. Well, uh, in, in your uh, in your travels, I, I, I would still imagine that you had time to uh, watch some different stuff. Uh, what, are you, what are you into now? What do we have this week? Uh, very excited. My favorite show on TV is back, Succession. The season three premiere aired last night. It was outstanding. So we're off and running on that. Uh, this upcoming weekend, Kirby Enthusiasm comes back, which I'm excited about. Okay. And I am off and running on Squid Game, which I know is going to be a big topic on today's pod. I've watched the first three episodes. Okay, so you're three, what is it, eight, I think, or eight or nine episodes, I think it is. Uh, I, I, I binged it and I got through the whole, uh, whole thing. So we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about Squid, uh, Squid Game later on in the uh, show. But you're off and running, like you said. Um, this is something obviously with a lot of hype right now. So, so far, so good living up to the hype? Definitely interesting. Yeah. Uh, 
yeah, it's got me hooked. I, 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 I don't know if it's good hooked or just bizarre hooked, but it's uh, definitely oh, it's, it's, <laughs> it's definitely out there. Uh, now we, we should note, uh, Luis Aguilar's greatest moment, frankly, you could argue his one great moment in his whole life was identifying the movie Parasite way before it came out. He saw some sort of screening of it and That's alerted right. us that there was I mean, this incredible can, movie coming out. He hangs out. his hat on that constantly. And yeah. so here we go. Another South Korean, uh, bit of entertainment here. And so he's all over this. He's been sending his texts about it. He wanted to build this whole podcast around it. He, he wants to recapture <laughs> that parasite magic. Oh my goodness. Okay. So I, uh, I did have in my list here. Yes. Squid game. I do think it lives up uh it lives up to the hype to your point it's it's very strange um obviously you're watching it with uh, subtitles um yep. and so that that changes a little bit of the equation when you when you're not watching it in the original uh language and you're reading the subtitles i mean just from a practical perspective going up and down uh, there's stuff that you can miss uh but yeah it's uh it, it is addicting uh and so i think you will finish it up and, and be um I think I don't think you're going to be disappointed by the end of the uh, the nine episodes. All right, so that uh, I, I finished that and I gave it two thumbs up without a doubt. Uh, I, uh, that's on Netflix, by the way, on HBO over there. New um, two part documentary: What happened to Brittany Murphy? For those that uh, remember the uh, actress um, who you know came about in the movie Clueless and then Nine Mile and a bunch of different uh, stuff up there. Oops, sorry. Uh, she uh, she passed away in the uh, in the mid aughts there, and there's all sorts of intrigue and, and mystery around uh, her death and her husband, who then died a few le- years later. So that's a that's an interesting one and a kind of a peek into the whole '90s uh, uh, and 2000s aughts type of celebrity culture and how it impacts uh, actresses. And while it doesn't seem that long ago, uh, even the way that we functioned as a society relative to celebrity and fame and all that kind of stuff um, even looks antiquated uh, given our 2021 lens. Uh, I recommend that. That's a two-parter. And then uh, over on Amazon, I finished one called Lula Rich, um, which is basically this documentary on uh, Lula Row, which was this this clothing company, this online clothing company that ended up being basically a uh, a pyramid scheme. And just it's... It's as old as time, this story, and yet people constantly fall for it, I guess. And uh, that was really, really interesting to see, again, just how easy it is for people to build this up, to get other people to buy in, uh, and ultimately to dash their hopes when all is said and done uh, at the end. And from a business perspective, to see a business that grew so quickly, so fast, uh, and um, see how they were ill-prepared to deal with that. And so from a business perspective, even even aside from the uh, pyramid scheme, it's really interesting to see how um, if you, you know, if you are very, very successful as a, bus- as a business, if you are not prepared to expand and to grow, um, that can be a, as much of a problem as bad product or uh, anything else out there, which <laughs> what they also had was bad product. Anyway, so I recommend uh, all three of those. Uh, Mossy, anything else before we uh, light this candle? Actually, one more thing yeah. I forgot. I did go to the theater and see the James Bond movie, No Time to Die. Have you seen that yet? I haven't. You went to the actual theater, though? Yes. Okay. And thumbs up. Are you a Bonder, Bondy, whatever you call it? Uh, fan, but not a fanatic. Okay. Uh, I enjoyed it. I thought it was pretty good. Okay. This is the last one from Mr. Craig, right? Correct. Daniel Craig. So this is it. This is the, uh, all right. Well, I'll, I'll probably see it when it's, is it streaming somewhere? I think right now only theater. Wow. And and there's all sorts of talk about who's going to be the next James oh, Bond. Of course. Yes. Okay. Uh, which. All right. Well, listen, um, 
oftentimes I bury this later on in the show, but I want to remind everybody that we do have a uh, State of the Union podcast hotline. It is 657-549-2297. 657-549-2297. As you mentioned, we have um, we have some calls uh, and a call this week that we will uh, use, and we really we really enjoy that people are. Uh, accessing that and using that because not everybody does the Twitter or the, uh, you know, the, the Facebook or the Instagram or anything else there. So if you want to actually leave us a human being uh, type message, that's the number to, uh, to call. And it could be a question or comment and concern. And uh, some of them are actually <laughs> we can actually use after you stop swearing at me. Um, all right. Let's light this candle. You ready? Let's do it. All right. As you know, each and every week we kick the pod off with Alexi Lawless's State of the Union. Yes, it's time for my State of the Union, where I look at part of the game from an American perspective. And this week, it goes a little something like this. Newcastle United has new ownership and new life. It's as if the sunshine has finally broken through after an age of darkness, or at least an age of mediocrity. And let me be clear, when I say sunshine, I mean money because the new ownership of Newcastle United is loaded. It's what every fan of a struggling club wishes for, a rich savior. So it seems that happy days are potentially here again for this storied and once great club. But there is nothing romantic in what has been an overwhelmingly positive reaction to the news. If anything, it's further proof of the cold business realities of competing in the modern game. Sure. We'll rail against the financial disparities separating the elites from the peasants. We'll take to the streets to protest cynical money grabs from billionaires. We'll fly planes with banners decrying the loss of tradition and culture. But if and when it's our team that stands to benefit from rich people's massive spending, well, we'll conveniently become more pragmatic real quick. Look past any potential problems and we'll find some nuance to justify our stance. Hypocrisy is a small price to pay for winning. And ultimately, we all want to win, and we will forgive and forget pretty much anything in order to do so. Because while money may be the root of all evil, in the modern game, it's the root of all hope. All right, Mossy, uh, we're back. You heard my State of the Union. And it, it, it while it is focused on Newcastle, I, just, I think it has... Uh, the reason why I, I, I wanted to do it was because I think it, it, it applies to a lot of countries, a lot of cultures, a lot of teams, a lot of leagues. And I think it is it is relevant to the way that our world and our soccer world is uh, is growing and becoming. Um, and maybe I'm well, not maybe I'm, I'm sure I, I was when, when in in writing this. Uh, there was cynicism pouring from my veins. And I, I, I try to be positive about what's going on, but I can't help sometimes being a little grouchy and a little cynical when it comes to our world, when it comes to hypocrisy, sanctimony, judgment, and the general ridiculousness. And, and this doesn't just apply to soccer. And I think that's where this was born of. And uh, am, am I off base in terms of the way that I have framed this? Because I, before, before I get your answer here, I do want to read... Uh, after I had uh, submitted this yesterday and, and told you guys what, what I was going to be talking about, uh, I was looking at some of the news and stuff like that. And even someone like Jamie Redknapp, who's a, a, a pundit over in England, said, and I'll quote him here, I'm not sure the majority of fans really care who owns their club. Am I just being cynical or am I just this is just the reality of, of the world that we, we live in in uh, 2021? Uh, no, I agree with your 
monologue 100 uh, percent now there's two layers to this story the premier league's decision to approve the takeover and then the reaction of newcastle fans let's just tackle that first one okay. uh to begin with uh when the takeover was delayed you allowed yourself to think that maybe the premier league had grown a conscience uh but then you came to realize it was all to do with the piracy issue and the fact that Saudi Arabia was illegally showing Premier League games once that issue got resolved. And once the Premier League received assurances that the Saudi Arabian government would not be involved in the running of this team, which is laughable, then they approved the takeover. And so it raises all sorts of issues about what's the responsibility of these sports leagues, because to be fair, there are people in sports that say, you know, wh why do we have to be the moral arbiters of the world? England and Saudi Arabia are allies. Uh, the England has an embassy in Saudi Arabia. They send them money and arms. The British ambassador came out enthusiastically in favor of this takeover. So people in sport look at that and say, well, wait a minute, if they were this global pariah, we wouldn't do business with them, but clearly they're not. So why can't we accept their money? Um, we don't want to veer off too much into politics, but do you have any sympathy for that argument? How would you feel if it was an MLS club and Don Garber approved it and used that argument to justify the decision? Oh, I have no problem with it. I have no problem with Newcastle. I, no, I would have no problem with others. But the the way in which you look at your team, I mean, to your point, um, you know, why should be the, what you call them? The moral moral arbiters. It's a good. It's a good. Uh, it's a good phrase, right? Uh, right there. The reason why is because I'm told time and time again that sports are something more. Sports are something special. And by the way, I'm told oftentimes that relative to American sports. European sports in particular are something even more so that it's not just a, a business and business is a bad word and money is a, is a bad word that they are um, that they are reflections of their countries and their cultures and in many cases their cities or their villages they are a reflection of the, the history and the tradition and the culture that exists they are much more than the 90 minutes that is played. That is ultimately how they're, they are celebrated, but their influence and their impact on those people and on multiple generations and on that community is undeniable. And so I think that's where I say, okay, if that is the case, then how is it possible that you would you would let something like this go. And by the way, this doesn't just apply to uh, Newcastle. And and I think uh, you know when I read uh, Jamie's comment there, uh, he went on to say that it would be a very slippery slope. And so be very very careful when we're when we're judging. And I'm not saying that everything is is equal uh, when when it comes to the evils or the sins that uh, that that uh, people or entities have uh, have committed out there. But it it gets very very quickly when you're looking at billionaires and oligarchs and and uh and and countries <laughs> and these massive types of billionaire multi i mean newcastle is now the richest club in the world uh, uh because of this and which is and, and i can understand i completely understand the reaction that fans have like like i said they want to win they want to be there in that moment raising a, a, a trophy having the confetti come down especially a team like newcastle that was once great and has seen the world and the soccer world pass them by because of nothing else because they're still popular they're still a, a big brand but the reason why the world has passed them by is simply because of money and so now they see a pathway back relative to the money that's associated yeah, where Newcastle fans lose me, and, and I agree with you that any other fan base would have been happy to be become overnight the richest club in the world. But where they lose me is when they have rallies where the fans chant, we've got our club back. And I know they're trying to make this all about the outgoing owner rather than the incoming owner. But 
I mean, this spin they're trying to put on it, and also this business of the bringing these Newcastle legends back into the fold, like Alan Shear and Kevin Keegan, and our good friend Warren Barton, who I love to death, but he's gotten kind of swept up in this, uh, to give this a veneer of romanticism that this is a club recapturing its roots with this sale, that is complete and utter <laughs> nonsense. There might not be a club in world football that less belongs to its supporters right now than Newcastle United. I mean, the reality is you sold your soul to be good. Let's let's own it that that's what's happening here. Yeah, and you know, I think the the pressure, especially in the modern day, I, I was, I, you know, I think I talked about this and I mentioned that, you know, in Arsene Wenger's pitch, and once again, this isn't to, to say that it's right or, or wrong, but one of the things that he that he has talked about is how different the game is today than obviously when a lot of stuff was put in place 90 years ago, including having the World Cup every four years. And, and it is night and day. It's night and day in terms of the way the game is played. It's night and day in terms of the way that we look at it from the outside, the way we, wa way we watch the game. And it's night and day in terms of the ownership involved. And in order to compete, and unless and until you have a much stricter type of structure that that limits what you can spend in, in the form of, of salary cap, which is not going to happen, then it is this, this arms race. And Newcastle has just gotten uh, the money and we still remains to be seen because just, just, just because you have money doesn't mean they're gonna spend it on it. But I think from all, from the, from the way that it looks right now, that the reason why they are so happy is because there is going to be a commitment of money to bring them up to the level of the others that they have, uh, they have looked at uh, so long. Do you think with all the hoopla and all the attention right now, do you think that the new ownership um, is not going to do that or you think they can afford not to play with the big boys uh, if you will in terms of the spend and because this is a team right now that's still fighting <laughs> fighting relegation so they got to get that sorted out too no no i mean they're going to spend big and they're going to be successful uh i know uh people have brought up the fact that well money isn't everything look at such and such club they spend and they haven't won any trophies but you know as miguel delaney pointed out in a column recently i thought it was a brilliant line Citing the occasional success of a low spending club or occasional failure of a big spending club as evidence that money doesn't rule football is like clinging to a few cold days to dismiss global warming. The larger trends are undeniable. And, and I think you made such a key point. You know, I, I brought up MLS, but in American sports, it is different. And I know folks in Europe bristle at any, uh, holding up of American sports as an example, but because you have a salary cap, it's a more level playing field. Uh, you, 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 could look at a, a sale like this a little bit more critically and say, well, is this the type of owner that we want to have at our club? Because just having all that money isn't going to necessarily guarantee success. Uh, and, and yes, in American sports, having a rich, ambitious owner helps. But in European soccer, that's the whole ball game. So no club is going to be in a position to turn down this kind of money. Um, and, and, you know, it's money on a scale that, that it, they're going to be successful. I'm sorry. Now, are they going to win the Champions League? I don't know. If you want to make that the goalpost like people do with City and PSG to make themselves feel better about it. But uh, as I've brought up many times, when the PSG owners walked in the door in 2011, that was a mid-table league on team. And 10 years later, they're reaching Champions League finals and they have Messi, Neymar, and Mbappe on their team. So it's been a spectacular <laughs> success by yep. any measure, any realistic measuring stick. And same thing with Manchester City. Yes, they haven't won a Champions League title. They got to the final last season. Who do they lose to? Chelsea, another one of these types of clubs. So 
Newcastle, you know, people can bristle at them throwing out names like Holland and Mbappe. And sure, I don't think overnight those kinds of players are going to go there. Um, you know, if you, if you look at City as an example, PSG became a success overnight, but Ligue 1 is less competitive than the exactly, Premier League. Yeah. Uh, with City, it took three or four years to really get going and start contending for major trophies. So, okay, it, it might take that long for Newcastle, but they'll get there. I'm sorry. They're going to become a top club with top players that are challenging for major trophies. I just think money on this scale and the way European football is structured, it, it cannot fail. They are now one of these clubs that is too big to fail. So so certainly they can have a 10-year plan, but you don't see this as a 10-year plan. You see in the next three years or so, this is a team that is consistently, at the very least, in Champions League, uh, which, which in and of itself is, is something, and then competing with the, with the, with the elites. And certainly from an EPL perspective is someone that we are going to put in that top four-ish type of thing. I do. I really, I think that's where we're headed. Um, you, you know, it's interesting. I, I All these pieces, that they, they pay lip service to the fact that they say, well, there's some division among Newcastle fans over this. I, I'm not seeing it. I'm only seeing the positive reaction. And some of the surveys I've read, uh, it, it shows that like 97% of Newcastle fans approve this takeover. It's okay. There are one or two here and there that maybe don't. But I mean, let, let's stop pretending like there's some division here in the Newcastle fan base. 97% is a consensus to me. I mean, they... <laughs> Well, I mean, the, you know, the media was out uh, in force at this game because, you know, we'll talk about the game here in a second, but, but because of what was behind the game and was this rebirth and this, this refreshing, refreshing of this, of this team. And, you know, they, they would talk to the man and woman on the street and get their reaction and stuff like that. And it was amazing to see the, the wheels spin as these questions were, uh, were given to Newcastle fans about and, and see how they would justify it, even in the moment, how they would justify it when faced with the reality and, um, you know, some of the history and some of the problems when it comes to Saudi Arabia and, uh, and, and the new ownership. But ultimately it comes. And once again, this isn't, I guess it's me judging, but it's not me. It, it is no surprise. And I, I've, all the things that I may have accused them or others uh, over the years of, I'm certainly guilty of it at, at different times. And and I'm a fan uh, of different teams and I want my team to win and I want my team to compete. And I'm, I'm sure if this were to happen to a team that I supported and I love, I would find ways to zhuzh it and, and new, uh, find nuances to enable me to justify it to myself or others. Newcastle have an LGBT supporters group and they put out a statement and bear in mind, Saudi Arabia is a country where being gay is illegal and punishable by death. So I thought, okay, they're going to be the ones that are going to raise some issues with this takeover. And even their statement was kind of, like you said, a little wishy-washy and more on the side of positive, and this is a good thing. So when I read that, I said, yeah, it, at, at the end of the day, it is all about winning. And if you're a fan of a club, you're going to figure out any way to rationalize. There was this. a lot of, you know, <laughs> I got to do my research and I got to, you know, study and I got to find out more of it. And well, nothing's really been proven or, you know, this is, there, there's a lot of different <laughs> angles to, you know, whatever. I mean, yeah, and but now, it's even more pressure uh, for them to make sure they spend. And, and to your point, I do think that they will spend. And from a pure competitive standpoint, that's a good thing. It's a good thing that you have somebody who is willing to keep up because there's not a lot out there that are going to do it. And if immediately because of this spend, they become relevant again, um, it's, it's good for them. It's good for their brand, which when it all kind of started and the world started to explode from a branding perspective, Newcastle was there. And they've kept some of that cachet in terms of the numbers and their their profile. But a lot of teams have gone 
uh, well far ahead of them. So we'll see if they make up that lost uh, for uh, for that lost time. Um, as I said before, they are still fighting for uh, to stay to stay in the EPL. And while it started off great, everyone was uh, was. Uh, was uh, excited uh, at the stadium when the whistle blew. Newcastle goes up. They played Spurs at uh, uh, at home. And then Tottenham said, no, not so fast. And they ended up losing anyway. Probably given where they are as a team, not necessarily uh, the end of the world, because like I said, they are just going to be fighting to stay in the EPL uh, right now. W- the next transfer window uh, that's coming, do you think it already starts at the next transfer window from a, a, a messaging standpoint in terms of what they do? Yeah, uh, I remember Manchester City, their takeover uh, was approved just uh, late in the summer of 2008, uh, which is a few days left in the transfer window. And they were able to turn around before the end of that window and get Robinho from uh, Real Madrid, um, you know, which it was a step in the right direction. It yeah. wasn't yet the, oh my God, would it, you know, change the balance of power in English football type move. So I think you're looking at a couple of moves like that, a, a, a a international player of some renown that they're going to be able to get that's going to improve the team but not be yet the earth-shattering sort of that's going to take a couple of years of building up some credibility to the point where players feel like they can they can go there and have a chance to compete uh and yeah city it took a couple of years after the takeover for the sergio agueros and david silva types to go there and yaya torre and you know the rest is history so yeah i think they'll make a, a move or two of note during this january when there won't be yet anything earth-shattering but it'll just start them down that path well, I should note that we're starting the pod off this week uh, going kind of around Europe because of, you know, how, I think how this, this story kind of applies to everything that we talk about. Usually we start off and we go much more uh, American-centric, but we just kind of switched it around here. But, but I will say that this type of conversation, even though you, you, know, you, you, you rightly pointed out that the U.S. sports scene from a structural perspective is, is and can be very, very different, there are still plenty of MLS teams that if new, very deep pocketed ownership came in, uh, they would they would be ecstatic. Uh, or even if just different deep pocketed ownership came in. So, for example, I don't know. Um, while 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 Stan Kroenke is has plenty of money, that doesn't necessarily filter down to what Colorado uh, is as a team in terms of the amount of money that they spend. While Red Bulls certainly have plenty of money. That doesn't necessarily filter down to uh, the New York Red Bulls in, uh, in what they do. So this is not simply a, a European pheno- phenomenon when new ownership comes in. The first thing that happens, whether you're playing in a league like Major League Soccer, where there is a much more stricter type of salary cap or where it's kind of wide open uh, over in Europe, the first question that anybody asks when new ownership comes in is, how much money do you have? And how much are you going to spend on this team? And that is the state of uh, the game. And to your point, it, it there are anomalies here or there. But the reality is that if you spend, and if you have even a, a halfway decent <laughs> knowledge of the game and an understanding on how to spend, you can very, very quickly make up, uh, make up any gap and become a competitive team very, very quickly. And that's what uh, the Newcastle folks are uh, hoping for. Uh, since we are uh, going around uh, Europe here, anything else stick out to you in uh, in the Premier League? Manchester United, uh, that was a problem. Well, just 
just put, put a button, button on Newcastle sure. in their loss to Tottenham. Uh, there was a scary incident. A fan collapsed yep. uh, in the stands during the game, which the play was stopped for 25 minutes. It sounds like he's okay, so that's yep. nice our to best, hear. Our best to him, uh, um, and we hope he gets better and uh, is back in the yep. in the grounds watching his uh, beloved Newcastle. But yeah, the, the big result of the weekend in England was Leicester beating Manchester United 4-2. Uh, so, you know, you, you always joke about how one week it's Ollie in, another week it's Ollie out. So the club have come out publicly and backed him. Oh, but geez, I, that's I, not saw good. You, I saw you tweeting about this this morning, this incredible run of games they have the next six weeks. I mean, it's. I mean, so Atalanta, so, so Champions League, Atalanta, uh, two games, then Liverpool. Well, within that, it's Liverpool, Tottenham, and Man City in the next three EPL games. So, and, and then not that far off after that, they have away to Chelsea and home to Arsenal, away to Villarreal in the Champions League. So, I mean, it's the next six weeks are brutal. It is, but there there is also the feeling that Ole figures out a way against better competition. It's it's really just gathering those points from teams that are below or equal to them. Now, there's already the first rumblings that the Ronaldo signing. Yes, he scores goals but he sort of undermines your overall collective play because he doesn't press at all. That's and not on him. That's not uh, whoever made the signing because everybody has said that for years about him. So this should come as no surprise <laughs> to anybody that you do. If you have Ronaldo on the field, you do have to adjust. And if it's just occurring to you, then you should be fired. OK, because that is dereliction of duty and duty that the reality of it has been known to anybody out there. All right. So if that's how if that's where you are right now as either uh, well, not, not not a fan, but if, if you are in the Manchester United camp and you are coming to this realization, then you are a moron. <laughs> um, then uh, City beat Burnley 2-0. Zach Steffen got a start because Ederson came back late from uh, international duty and he, he pitched a shutout and Pep praised him afterwards. So uh, nice to see. Huh? It's great. Uh, it's great that he that is playing, that Pep still kind of looks at him on the radar. I, I still don't think he's, he's even close to the number one. But the fact that they have such a capable goalkeeper uh, is, you know, the, the rich just kind of get richer. And uh, for Pep, it's actually really good to be able to put him into games. I mean, the same way that that we saw Zach Steffen, and we'll talk about the U.S. national team here later on. Sometimes it's hard to find games for for players that you recognize they could be important, especially for for backup goalkeepers. I mean, if your number one just walks off the street and hurts themselves and off the curb or something like that, you got to have somebody that is capable, both from a physical perspective and a mental perspective. And the mental part of it is is, is just as important to keep them in the game. So this is not just great for Zach Steffen, but this is great for uh, for Man uh, Man City. Although, I mean. They should beat Burnley. As, I mean, with a with a smoke and a coffee. Uh, I want to talk about Mo Salah, but I'm going to save it for the end of this segment. Uh, okay. Yeah, let's move on to Italy, okay. where there were two uh, massive games. Uh, Juve, after a rough start to the season, have had a nice run of results here. They beat Jose Mourinho and Roma one nil. Moise Keane with the only goal. A little bit of controversy here because Roma missed a penalty, but it was a play where the referee sh probably should have played the advantage and then Roma would have scored. They put the ball in the back of the net, but he had blown the whistle for a penalty. Mourinho was unhappy afterwards. Um, but uh, the real craziness occurred in Lazio's 3-1 win over Inter. Uh, my boy, Felipe Anderson, who I've talked about on this podcast, I love. He had a great performance, scored the game-winning goal, but it was a very controversial game winner. This drove me crazy. I don't know if you saw this, but... Uh, Inter had the ball, an Inter player went down on the ground injured, and Inter kept playing and tried to score. Lazio won the ball back, 
And so they kept playing. They went down the field and scored. And Inter flipped out about it. And like Lazio had done something terribly wrong. It sparked this massive brawl. And this stuff drives me crazy. We need to sort of clean up this gray area. Yep. It needs to be, if the re- re- it's at completely at the discretion of the referee. If he blows the whistle, the game stops. If he doesn't, the game continues. This notion that it's incumbent on the team with the ball to figure out, it depends on the, the score, the time, the situation, where on the field they are, and, and whether they think the guy's time-wasting or not, whether it's a real injury. It's just too many variables that you're asking a player in the middle of a game to sort of think about and deciding whether to play the ball out or not. And I just find it ludicrous. Amen. You, you agree? Amen, Mossy. It drives me crazy because you are you are putting a um, you're putting a label on players uh, when it's completely unnecessary to do. The, the, because if if you don't do it, then you're violating the spirit and the the, the uh, the morals of the game and this unwritten rule that we have when it comes uh, to soccer. And it's so arbitrary uh, right now. And the rage and the irritation from the opposing team, if you dare actually follow the laws of the game <laughs> and continue to uh, to play, we've well, you know, we've made it very, very clear that if there is a head injury, automatically the game stops. And I think that that's, you know, that's right. And certainly if there is something, you know, God forbid, protruding bone or something, uh, something like that. Yes, the referee. But but to your point, that's why the referee is there. And it's so arbitrary right now. And you know what? You know whose fault this ultimately is? This is the player's fault. Okay, because there is a history and a tradition that soccer players fake injuries. All right. And it's not just uh, known from the outside in terms of people watching the game. The players know that, too. And so when you see somebody down because of that history and because of that culture that you have cultivated and probably played a part uh, in yourself, you have to second guess and say, well, I don't know, he might just be just be faking it. And this could be an advantage that I am giving away for no reason at all. And so, yes, I, I don't I mean, I don't know necessarily what the answer is, but at some point, some players in positions of power and authority and obviously the leadership off the field, they have to make it very, very clear that if and when you decide to play on, okay, it doesn't make you a bad person it does, and you're not violating any, any laws or any spirit of the game out, out there. And, you know, maybe it's a, it's a lesson and a shot at those that do want to use injuries and fake injuries uh, out there because that's, it's a black mark on, on the game and it it has not gone away and it it rears its ugly head often and oftentimes in those uh, different moments so i'm glad you brought that up there was a second bizarre incident in this game at the final whistle so uh inter have this argentinian striker joaquin correa who uh, used to play for Lazio, spent three seasons there. His best friend on the team was this Brazilian defender, Luis Felipe, who's still at Lazio. Who So they squared off in this game. And at the final whistle, uh, where Lazio won 3-1, this ill-tempered game where it was emotional um, atmosphere, uh, he went and gave uh, Joaquin Correa this big bear hug from behind. And Joaquin Correa did not take kindly to it, kind of shoved him off him. It sparked another brawl. Luis Felipe ended up getting sent off. He was in tears. He posted this message on Instagram afterwards saying, you know, he's my friend. I just wanted to give him this affectionate bear hug. And I don't understand. Our families are friends and I love him. And oh my God. I kind of side with the interplayer on this. You know, it was a little weird if you watch it. I mean, like the final whistle just blows. It's this 
emotional defeat for Inter and you come in and give him this giant bear hug with a smile on your face. I mean, I'm sure you've you've come up against former teammates in your career where, where the split second after a Read game Read the ends. room, man. Read the room, okay? <laughs> uh, yes. You, you got to understand how it's going to play to the individual that, you, that, that you're doing this to, but also how it's going to play in, in a world in which everything is recorded and therefore replayed out there. So, I mean, look. You put your hand over your mouth nowadays to keep people from reading your lips. You should know before doing something like that how it's going to play. Uh, in Germany, uh, there was this massive buildup for Leverkusen's top of the table clash against Bayern. And what happens? It's Bayern race out to a 5-0 halftime lead. They scored at one point four goals in seven minutes. I hate to say it. It reminded me a lot of the Brazil-Germany World Cup semifinal, the 7-1. Second half, Bayern took the foot off the gas, so it ended 5-1. Uh, listen, we dealt with this for five years while covering the Bundesliga. There's so much to like about that league. Uh, high scoring, the football's exciting, great fans. It's this breeding ground for young stars, uh, including Leverkusen have this player, Florian Wirtz, who's phenomenal. But you always end up looking stupid if you try to build up any drama at the top of the table. Uh, and and they got caught in that this week, and they ended up looking stupid. They're getting mocked for you know trying to hype this up as if there's any sort of suspense here about who's going to win the league again. Oh, top of the table clash. I wonder how this is going to go. And it went the way it went. So, I mean, unfortunately, that's something the Bundesliga has to deal with. Yeah, I mean, and nothing is going to, ch going to change until they fundamentally... Well, I mean, I suppose it could change if a Newcastle-esque type of thing happened for some of these teams. But again, it can't happen because of 50, 50 plus, plus one, one rule, right. which there is that debate. You know, they in Germany, they look down on what's happening with Newcastle and say, oh, that could never happen with us. But then people in England point to Germany and say, well, you, you have Bayern Munich winning the league every year and no club can ever muster up the financial resources to really challenge their dominance. So it, is your system in the long run good or not? So, yeah, it's an interesting it, debate. back it, and forth. It's interesting because the Bundesliga, the way that I look at it is much more progressive and kind of open to the world. I'm not saying they're not incredibly proud of, and should be of what they have created uh, over there from a, a, a league perspective and, and a cultural perspective when it comes to the game. But it, it for a team like or a, a, a league like the Bundesliga, it wouldn't surprise me if they would kick the tires on a more of a of a American structure uh you know, a, uh, a salary cap-ish type of, uh, of thing uh, going forward. I don't know how that would play, but it would be interesting. I remember one of the years where we were covering the Bundesliga, uh, some uh, of official of some club, I forget which, came out in favor of playoffs. Yeah. And that was sort yeah. of undermined Bayern's dominance a little bit because, you know, as we know from MLS, there, there's the an unpredictability to yeah. that one-off knockout scenario. So, yeah, you're right. I mean, but, if there is a league that might try something different. You know. and, and Bayern especially when they're playing in the Bundesliga, you always feel like there is another gear that it's not that they, they hold back. It's just that they can hold back. And so when they need to, to kick it in and add that, uh, add that extra gear, they can, because look, it's still Bayern and Dortmund at the top of the table. And while they're separated by one point, we we've seen this, uh, this before. I hope it, I hope it changes. And I hope, you know, this is, this is one of those years when it does change, but you know, history tells us that even though it looks close on paper, the reality is that when all is said and done, Bayern Munich could be drinking out of the steins. And then in Spain, uh, Barcelona actually had a nice win, 3-1 over Valencia. Ansu Fati scored a goal and 
earned the penalty that Memphis Depay converted, and then Coutinho scored the third goal off a lovely assist from Sergino Des, who started as a winger yep. and had an excellent game. So, I mean, his versatility, right back, left back, and now as a winger, too. Uh, although it, it was a little apples and oranges when uh, when, when Sergino Des is playing for Barcelona, I just I would caution all of us if he does something there. It we all know it doesn't necessarily translate. Somebody asked me about this uh, about if he is so good in attack, then why don't you just play him in attack? Which which is easier done at Barcelona than it is for the U.S. men's national team and the equations for being in that position change dramatically. And sometimes he benefits from kind of coming late and seeing everything in front of him and the space that, that opens up with. And we certainly saw it in this in this last window, him getting forward. You know, the real chest test for Serginho Dest is always going to be when they are playing against a team that is better equal. I mean, even the, the Mexico game coming up uh, is going to be really interesting if he is out there where his priority, um, because that's what <laughs> Greg Berhalter wants, is to mark somebody and just the flow of the game. He's not going to get those different oppor uh, opportunities. But um, I don't necessarily see this. It's, it's nice to have that option, but I don't necessarily see Serginho Dest because he's doing it at Barcelona at a more in a more advanced position that that translates to the national team. Uh, Sergio Aguero also made his Barcelona debut. And uh, next week, and obviously they have a, a, a Champions League game midweek against Dinamo Kiev, and then they host Real Madrid in the Clasico. Now, we know that game has lost some luster the last couple of seasons. Uh, what about this season with no Messi or Ronaldo? Is that appointment viewing for you anymore? Nope. Or depending on what other games are on, you might, that might not even... No, nope. No, I mean because I didn't have the history that some have when it comes to, well, the names change, but it's still the, 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 the rivalry that matters the most. My, um, the way that I related to that game was the fact that it's not that I'm seeing a great rivalry. It's that I'm seeing a great rivalry featuring, in that case, it was two of the great, greatest players ever to play the game. Uh, and oftentimes at the top of their game. So yeah, uh, and I don't know, you know, until you start creating that next version of the Messi's and Neymar's and you have them playing in La Liga, and who knows, maybe Mbappe might have that, then the international lure of those games is always going to be relative for the, for the global audience to who is on the field. Um, and it's going to be, the minority is going to just come to it no matter what because of what it represents as the, uh, the classic. Uh, and then uh, match day three of the Champions League is this week. Uh, some of the games I have my eye on, PSG host uh, Jesse Marsh and Leipzig. Uh, no Neymar uh, for that game. He's battling a muscle injury. Also, no Mauro Icardi. He's battling a broken heart, Alexi. So, uh, <laughs> okay. But uh, PSG still have some names of note, so it will be a tall order for Jesse Marsh there. All right. Uh, Atletico Madrid hosts Liverpool. That's, That's the a great one. Game. That's what I'm looking at. Uh, low key, the, the most entertaining game might be Ajax hosting Dortmund. So much young talent on that field. And then Manchester United face Atalanta. So some, some good games to look forward to. Uh, I do want to end speaking about the Ballon d'Or yes, because go. those debates are already starting. I thought when Argentina won the Copa America this summer that it was over uh, when you factor in Messi's weekend week out brilliance with the fact that this was the year he finally won a, a senior trophy with Argentina. There was no doubt they were going to give it to him. You saw the reaction when they won it. They celebrated like they won the World Cup and the whole world 
seemed to go along with the fact that this was some monumental achievement. So uh, game over as far as the Ballon d'Or. And gun to my head, I still think Messi wins it, which would be his seventh. But there's a lot of campaigning going on for other players right now. Uh, in There's a sentiment in Germany that, look, you didn't give out a Ballon d'Or last year. Yeah. Lewandowski would have clearly won it. Why not rectify that by giving it to him this year? He scored two goals again this past weekend against Leverkusen. He's been just as great it's gonna be, this it's, year. It's going to be rectified, Mossy. Oh, you think it'll be Lewandowski? Yeah. Oh, interesting. Yeah. yeah the other two guys I was going to mention are... Uh, you know, the hipsters have rallied around Jorginho, which I find ludicrous, the notion of him owning the Ballon d'Or, but that's a conversation for another day. <laughs> and then the guy whose candidacy is gaining some steam is Mo Salah, who we've talked about on this podcast recently. Uh, certainly the best player in the Premier League right now. And I would argue he's been the best player in the world so far this season. Again, won, this yeah. weekend in their 5-0 thumping of Watford, the pass to uh, Mane with the outside of the foot and then the goal he scored in the second half. He is playing out of his mind right now. And so you never know. Recency bias, as these people are going to go to vote, he's clearly the best player right in front of them at that moment. You never know. But you you think that's a stretch. I, 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 I get the recency bias uh, argument, but I, I do think that the the fact that he wasn't, Lewandowski wasn't given it, I do think that that is going to factor in. Uh, because there is a a body of work that I pe think people are going to uh, going to recognize and and reward. Yeah, it's going to be interesting. All right, uh, do you, you still think Messi's going to win? It, though, I right? still think Messi's going to okay. win. Okay, I mean, what's I mean, <laughs> wouldn't be necessarily be a surprise given who he was and obviously given uh, what he's done. All right, that's our little trip around uh, Europe. Uh, we appreciate you uh, letting us start off with that. We're going to take a real quick break, and when we come back. Oh, yeah, we'll wrap up what happened with uh, World Cup qualifying in that window and uh, see, uh, take a look ahead and see what's uh, uh, to be expected in that next window. Don't go away. All right, we're back, uh, as you know, and, and this is it's not necessarily old news, but I felt like we should kind of put a button on the uh, U.S. men's national team window. And we know these windows nowadays have three games, which has kind of thrown everything into a, a different lens uh, relative to the two games. Uh, next window coming up, by the way, we'll only have two games, but these were three game uh, windows. And you know, as we talked about last week with with Stu, even before that uh that that third game happened this was um a, a kind of another window where i think that this team and in particular greg berhalter come out of it not smelling like a rose um and, and not just in terms of the points that i guess were dropped or they didn't get relative to expectations out there but just in general in you know, six games played now of the 14 games in the octagonal. And let's be honest, this six week stretch does not include um, uh, the two games against Mexico and obviously the away game against Canada. So you could argue that those are the three hardest games and they are still to come. And the game against Canada that they did have, they only got a point, uh, point in. So I think the jury is still out for a lot of people when it comes to Greg Berhalter as the head coach and the, this team, not that not that it's not it doesn't have incredible talent and not that there aren't high expectations, but the, the seemingly consistent way in which they are, I guess, failing to live up to people's expectations. And maybe those are unrealistic expectations. I think that's what's giving people pause right now. That's so that's my general look at this second window, uh, not not 
and that's in no way to suggest that I think that Greg Berhalter is or should be fired by any stretch of the imagination. I'm just saying that that you know there are a lot of people out there. I think that look at this and will have expected more. Mossy, your thoughts in general first. I think in both windows they collected less points than we would have wanted going in. But you look at the table at the end of it and you think, well, but they're still okay. And the fact that they won the final game in both windows uh, helps the perception. You go out on a, on a good note. Um, I know the podcast you did with Stu was between games two and three. So yes. you're reacting to the Panama loss. We were loss reacting to the, the, the loss. Uh, um, but, but also, you know, we looked at it forward. And I think uh, both of us then, and I think a lot of people recognized that there was going to be a bounce back. And there had to be a bounce back. And there was. Yeah, I thought they, they played well against Costa Rica. I had no issues with that game. Uh, they were facing an opponent that was going to park the bus and be an annoying nut to crack. And then you give up this freak goal a minute in, which makes it even more difficult. But they dominated the game from start to finish. They won 2-1. They could have scored more goals. Uh, so I had no issues with that performance at all. Um, I know it's been brought up, you know, Navas going off at halftime was a little bit of a break mm -hmm. because some people think he would have saved that Timothy Ware shot. Although if you want to play the injury game, the U.S. was without Pulisic and Reina. And in fact, I think when judging these first six games of the octagonal, you have to do it through the lens of all the injury issues they've had and missing players for each game. So they really haven't been able to put their quote unquote best team on the field. We, we also didn't play our best goalkeeper, so... You know. Well, let's 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 go there. We, we use, how surprised were you? <laughs> okay, that? so that I mean that was uh, that was probably the big news when it came to the lineup that was put out for um, for the Costa Rica game. The the summer and I guess the year of Matt Turner, um, which is undeniable in terms of the success, uh, and that he parlayed into I think in everybody's minds, even big Zach Steffen fans, um, and I I am one of those recognize that this is your number one and not because of any type of fluke. He continually proved it. And in the five games of the six in a row in the first five games of the octagonal that he started, that he had done nothing, although coming off of a loss, he had done nothing to change that. I, I don't like that. I don't, I don't, I don't think that, that it was right. But once again, I'm coming at it from uh, the outside. And if this was done just to throw Zach Steffen a bone with the recognition that while Matt Turner is the number one, he could get hurt. Things could, you know, things could crumble and you want to at least keep him in the game from a mental perspective. I, I understand that, but he's, you know, Zach's a big boy. He, he understands what the reality of, uh, of soccer and, and life is. So I thought that that was... If Matt Turner had done something, then it could be more justified, but he he did absolutely nothing. So I do hope that there was a conversation with Matt uh, from Greg Berhalter and his staff saying, hey, listen, this is why we're doing it. You haven't done anything. As a matter of fact, you are our number one goalkeeper right now. But we feel that certainly Zach is a great goalkeeper and uh, we feel that giving him this game is going to help us in the long run, and in the short run, it's not going to hurt us because, like we said, he's a, a he's a great goalkeeper. He let in a goal in the first uh, minute, and you know we can put blame all over the place, including uh, to Zach Steffen, but it it jolted them into a uh, a reaction. So yeah, I didn't like the, uh, the decision when it came to uh, Zach Steffen and goal over Matt Turner. Uh, Sergio Des with a great goal in the yeah, first half. What a goal! And and Tyler Adams with an excellent performance, yep. uh, reminding people not that anybody needed any reminding of his importance. So. No, I mean it shouldn't be a surprise to anyone when Tyler Adams 
consistently when he's on the field because he does have an injury history but when he is on the field that he is playing in a position where it's not all always readily apparent how valuable a player is that consistently when you're watching this uh this team you come out of the game saying damn that's that's somebody that you need on the field and this is what we've all been saying for a long time and that it's manifesting now on a continual basis is great because first off, he's on the field. Uh, and as I said before, with his injuries, that's not always uh, assured. Um, and second off, that he's kind of continuing to grow into this, this leadership role. And when I say leadership role, not just the, you know, the, the kicking of the ball. Um, which he leads by example in what he does and the space that he covers, the, the smart runs that he takes, the, 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 uh, the problematic situations that he diffuses, all, all of that kind of stuff. But also off the field in a team that, as we said before, is, is still very relative, is still very young and inexperienced. This core of players that are going to be there, not just for the 22 World Cup, but also for the 2026 World Cup, there is yet to be one kind of leader to emerge. And uh, Greg Berhalter has rotated the captaincy, but you know Christian Pulisic is not the type of leader that kind of comes out and does a whole lot, and he's not even there. Uh, so I think it's just a matter of time before Tyler Adams is permanently given the, uh, the captaincy, and I can't think of a better uh, a better choice right now. And once again, this is all, this is all from the outside. And that's, you know, that's, I'll get into that a little bit. It's, it's real easy from the outside for all of us that aren't there day after day after day, watching these players and watching these players train, watching these players interact. We, we ultimately, we agree or we disagree with the lineups that are, that are put out there, but what goes into assessing these players and that calculation that Greg Berhalter and staff go through, uh, the data that they put in, I'm not talking about analytics here, although there's plenty of that, but the data that they get from being around these players is a huge part of why these decisions are made. And while we see it from the outside and we say, well, I like it or I don't like it, we have, we have no context uh, and we have no layers or nuance when it comes to how and why these uh, decisions are played. And that's just, that's just the nature, the nature of the beast. But I think it is important sometimes to take a step back and remind us that they are not being made in a vacuum. Uh, they are being made with consultation with the, the staff over there, and they're being made relative to what they have seen, which is a, so much more robust um, and, like I said, layered type of assessment of, uh, of a player. What else, Boss? Uh, well, just to put a button on CONCACAF, so Mexico uh, beat El Salvador 2-0 in their final game of this window. Raul Jimenez with one of the goals. Nice to see him back in the mix. Uh, they're in first place with 14 points, the U.S. with 11, and then Canada in third place with 10. And I know it's uh, early enough that everybody's still bunched together, but those to me are clearly the three best teams that I expect to, barring something really unforeseen here to get those automatic spots, US, uh, Mexico, U.S., and Canada, which for Canada would mean a first World Cup since 1986. Um, and, and yeah, I mean, to your point about the U.S. not having played some of its toughest games, Canada has. They've already played away to Mexico yep. and away to the U.S. and gotten draws in both those games. And then they finished this window by thumping Panama 4-1 at home. Uh, BMO field was rocking. Alfonso Davies scored. What I know is being called an, an incredible goal. The Panama defender on that play, I mean, was 
pretty awful the way he did a poor job shielding that ball, trying to hope it would go out of bounds. But Davies took full advantage, showcased his speed there. And then he also assisted a goal by uh, Jonathan David. Tejan Buchanan found the back of it. I mean, they are loaded with talent. And we've talked about Canada's emergence as that third power in Konkakov. And I think we're seeing it so far in the octagonal. If there were others in this octagonal that I thought were of Canada's level, um, it, would, it would irritate me more. But, you know, I want the best teams in the World Cup. Yes, I want, from a personal perspective, the U.S. to be there. But Canada has already proven that they are light years ahead of the Canada that we have known over the last 30-something uh, years. I mean, I, like I said, uh, and I think I told you before, I remember watching them in the 86 World Cup. Uh, and they were my team only because of proximity and growing up in Detroit. And obviously the U.S. wasn't in that World Cup. I would love nothing more than for John Herman and, com and company to take this team to the World Cup, not just not just because it's a great story and it's Canada, but because I think that they are a really good team and you want to send from a CONCACAF perspective, perspective, the best uh, the best possible teams. Now, once again, only six games done. Things can change. It's going to get a whole lot more difficult when it comes to this U.S. team. I, I tend to think that they are going to kind of rise to the occasion. And once again, as I said, the next window is only going to have uh, two games. And so the rotation that got so much attention in this uh, in these last two windows is kind of going. Uh, I mean, hell, I think they should be able to play three games in a row. But if they can't play two games in a row, then we really got problems. And one of the games next window is U.S.-Mexico from you don't Cincinnati. Say, you don't say. Uh, I mean, we have time to preview that one, but some preliminary thoughts. Uh, how are you feeling about it? You just can't lose. I mean, you. while I want to, you know, get points, it, it worries me. Um, and... You know, we've been to that well now a couple times already this, <laughs> this year, and there's only so many times, and it would just suck that at the most important and crucial game against Mexico, uh, the U.S. didn't didn't show up. So I am I am cautiously optimistic on uh, on this one because you know I, I hope that uh, that Christian Pulisic is back by then, but you know you, you can't at this point right now when it comes to Christian Pulisic, you're not doing your job if you are planning. Um, to have him. You, you have to plan that he's not there uh, from here until, uh, until the World Cup because of his injuries right now. Hopefully he, he is there, which obviously changed the, the, uh, the complexion of the team. Who knows about Reyna, who's another potential starter, uh, starter out there, but I can't wait. I think it's going uh, to be fun, but don't think for a second that Mexico isn't just licking their chops because they will say, Nations League, Gold Cup, who the hell cares? Okay, this is the game uh, this is the game that matters. And, uh, you know, uh, Cincinnati, you better bring it. You better bring it because it's uh, it's an important three points. A lot of Drake in this week's rundown. Luis Aguilar must be a big fan. Uh, evidently, Drake requested to meet Alfonso Davies after the game. And then Luis Aguilar included this line in the rundown. Is Drake switch, uh, switching his allegiance from Mexico to Canada? Drake was a Mexico fan? Is that... Oh, he's wearing oh, a tree. One of his music videos, he's wearing a Mexico how you, jersey. How do you not know that? You know, I mean, Drake and uh, who's the guy that uh, that married the uh, uh, the, the Kardashian? Um, Kanye West. Kanye. They both released albums uh, around the same time. My my daughter was comparing and contrasting them with me the uh, the other day. So that's yeah. what I know about that. But I also know that if and when Drake becomes a fan of your team or whatever immediately you start losing so 
Um, this does not bode well for the Canadian national team. Uh, so be careful. Be, be very, very careful right now, John Herdman <laughs> and Alfonso Davies. Uh, I didn't ask for this, but Luis Aguilar threw it in here. Uh, he wants me to do a little bit on Conmebol qualifying. First off, big news is Neymar gave this interview uh, ahead of these last, these up, these last window mm -hmm. of games in which he said, this is probably going to be uh, my last World Cup because I'm not sure I have the mental strength to deal with football anymore. Uh, which uh, the interesting thing there is he just signed a five-year contract with PSG. So he had to call PSG to explain that he was speaking exclusively about international football. He's not going to retire in right. general anytime soon. He's not retiring. Calm them He's down. He's not retiring. Um, but on the international front, I mean, that, that led to all sorts of conversation in Brazil about his mental state. He hasn't seen that happy recently. I mentioned uh, on a recent podcast, I was very worried that we might be seeing the start of a Ronaldinho-like decline physically. He's been very sluggish this season. So uh, in the midst of all, all that, he makes these comments. He was suspended for Brazil's first game in this window against Venezuela. Uh, the second game was away to Colombia. He played poorly. They drew nil-nil. It was the first points Brazil had dropped in this qualifying campaign. So he lots of criticism there. But then he closed it out with an absolute masterclass against Uruguay. Phenomenal performance, a goal and two assists. But th those numbers don't do it justice. He was incredible, uh, which made me feel alleviated some of my concerns. Uh, Brazil in general, despite... Uh, racking up uh, impressive results, had actually played very poorly in this qualifying campaign and Chichi was getting crushed. This was, the Uruguay game was their best performance in years. It, it was 4-1 on balance of play. It should have been 6 or 7-0. Musleta stood in his head. The introduction of Rafinha, I think really helped Neymar having another player to take some of the creative load off his shoulders. Paqueta played great. Ali Wagner's favorite player. Uh, but going back to the Neymar comments, what did you make of them? Uh, well, we talked about this last week a little bit. Um, no, I don't think, I think, he, I think he'll, keep playing. I think he's just at a moment where he's a very emotional, passionate type of guy. And so he'll say stuff and things will change. The only thing that that might change it is if he were to lead Brazil to the World Cup next uh, next November, December in drop Qatar. Drop the mic. Yeah, drop the mic. That's that's it. But I don't know. I mean, I, I as much as we are excited about a World Cup in the U.S., Mexico and Canada and U.S. hosting 80 percent of the games, I think that there's a recognition, especially from people that that look at their brand and think about their brand of the opportunity of starring in a World Cup in the United States in particular. So I think that might be alluring to someone like me. And just big picture, Conmebol, you know, we covered the Copa America this summer and everybody went into that tournament thinking Brazil was the class of South American football. And then watching Brazil and Argentina over the course of that tournament, people started to realize, oh, maybe not as much as we thought. By the time we got to the final, it felt like a, a toss up. And sure enough, Argentina won at the Maracana. They've pushed on since then, played in incredible. They, they haven't lost a game in two years, while Brazil, as I mentioned, haven't played that well. So there's this growing feeling that Argentina have now clearly surpassed Brazil and that they're the, the best South American team uh, and best position to perhaps win the World Cup next year. Although this last Brazil performance against Uruguay has sort of slowed some of that down. So uh, Brazil and Argentina, it, it's unclear right now which is a better team of those two which you spin it forward to november i mentioned u.s mexico next window also have argentina hosting brazil so that's going to be uh, an interesting game for sure what what are we at here in terms of the uh um, uh, the standings here let me let me just pull uh, it up all right so brazil's still at the top argentina's second right uh, yeah you said. Brazil, so they're gonna call they're, both they're, of them are the next call. window brazil are home to colombia 
uh, and Uruguay host Argentina. If Brazil win that game and Uruguay don't beat Argentina, Brazil clinch. They'd, they'd clinch the World Cup. Germany have already clinched. Germany already they're clinched. The they're the first. Brazil right? would become well, presumably Qatar, the second but. team. Um, and and then the second game in that window is Argentina hosting Brazil. Remember, they were supposed to have already played a qualifier, right. but it was stopped a few minutes in uh, <laughs> yes. because of the Brazilian Crazy. health officials. So this will be the first real meeting, not counting those five minutes where the <laughs> game was actually played uh, since the Copa America final. So, All right. Well, uh, I'm, I'm not worried about Brazil or Argentina qualifying for the World as Cup. As Jurgen Klopp, you know, during this recent dust-up about uh, club versus country and South American players having to fly back. Oh, he, he said sort of tongue-in-cheek, but he said, just let Brazil and Argentina qualify automatically. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you're good. All right, listen, uh, we're going to take another quick break here. When we come back, oh, yes, it's time for Ask Alexi. Don't go anywhere. All right, we are back. And as I mentioned earlier, I just want to remind you about our hotline where you can leave a, a voicemail for the State of the Union uh, at 657-549-2297. That's 657-549-2297. But of course, you can use that hashtag and go on your, your Twitters and your Facebooks and your uh, Instagrams and let us know uh, what you think, as some people did today. So we, uh, we do have some audio questions. And we also have some uh, Twitter questions. What do we got, Mossy? Uh, I'm not going to feel bad about mispronouncing this first guy's name okay. because this is quite the... That's a lot of consonants. Wow. At Zierzinski10 asks, uh, Pep Guardiola said a couple of years ago he'd like to coach the U.S. men's national team one day. If this is his last season with Man City, should U.S. soccer try to get him regardless of how Burhalter is doing? Okay. So he said this a while ago, right? Uh yeah, so, relative to the U.S. And we know he took his sabbatical and lived in uh, in New York. So he has a, a relationship, if you will, with the United States. And I think has an appreciation uh, for that. I, I guess when, when you're contemplating this this possibility, right, um, th there are those that would say if someone like Pep Guardiola wants to coach the national team, you fire Greg Berhalter right now on the spot and you do it. OK, but. Why are we? Why would you do that? I think you have to answer that question first. It's because you think that he is a better coach than uh, than Greg Berhalter, okay? Um, but then you have to look and say, well, why is he a better coach than Greg Berhalter? Okay, and you look at the places that he has been. If Pep Guardiola were to coach the U.S. men's national team, it would be the first time in his coaching history that he was coaching a team that was a have not, shall we say, relative to everyone else, not everyone else, but many teams, uh, many teams out there. I'm not saying that, that you know, he's coaching a, a bottom type of team, but this is certainly not, this is not coaching Barcelona. This is not coaching uh, Bayern Munich. This is not coaching uh, Man City. And that is a very different type of skill set. Uh, and, and I'm not saying that he can't do it. This is why I always want that, that fantasy of mine to come true where you have all of these quote unquote great coaches and you have all of the players and then you have a draft and that parity exists because of uh, who they pick. Then we're going to actually find out how good they actually are as coaches. So I don't think it's as simple as if Pep Guardiola wants to coach the U.S., you hire you have you hire hire Pep Guardiola. And I know there's a lot of people out there listening to that, and that it just it blows their mind that you could possibly say no to someone like uh, Pep Guardiola. In the same way that I say it's not about the best uh, players, it's about the best collection of players when it comes to the national team. It's not about the 
the best coach. It's about the best coach for, in this case, the U.S. Uh, men's national team. And so, you know, that's a long way of saying to your question, uh, and we can't pronounce the, the name. Um, no, not, not necessarily. Now, I'm not, I'm not saying that he couldn't you know, bring incredible amount of success and depth and change to, uh, to the program right now. But his experience is so vastly different than what he would be falling into that it would worry me that he has no context in that type of situation. And how long would it take him to, to change and adapt to that new, new situation? Or would it actually become incredibly frustrating for him to not have the tools to make the masterpieces um, that he has been able to, uh, to make from a club perspective that we focus all of our success and that is relative to why you would be hiring him uh, in the first place? What do you think, Masi? Well, I, I know we want to tackle this question from a footballing perspective. I can't get past what I said a couple of weeks ago, which is I just don't like the idea of foreign managers in international football. I think the same eligibility rules that apply to players should apply to coaches. Uh, the, the notion that Brazil could hire Thomas Tuchel tomorrow, Argentina could hire Jurgen Klopp is strange to me. To me, international football should be just as much a referendum on a country's ability to produce coaches as, as much as players. So yeah, of course, you know, if other countries are hiring foreign managers and you have a chance to get a Pep Guardiola, I understand why U.S. fans are enamored of that possibility. But I don't know, when, when the day comes where the U.S. does win a World Cup, I'd like it to be with a, a, a U.S. manager. I, maybe that makes me, I don't know what that makes me. But a horrible person? <laughs> a horrible person. Yes, it makes you a horrible person. No, I, I understand exactly what you're saying. Although I, I will say that the U.S. men's national team, and and it's not a a uh, a recent type of uh, reality. It's actually been in place for decades. I think the U.S. men's national team, relative to its coach, because you know you're talking about an American coach um, who has experienced what the American game is and what the I guess what the American game isn't on and off the field and all of the uniqueness and strangeness that we have when it comes when it comes to our game. You're also looking at a lot a, a, a collection of players when it comes to the US men's national team where you know many of them have had a within that have had a very unique upbringing and many of them haven't gone through a lot of the what we would call traditional type of American soccer uh, pathways and opportunities and experiences. And so so while I understand, I understand what you're saying, I just, I would submit that maybe the U.S. men's national team more so than any national team out there because of, you know, the diversity um, and this, this melting pot type of situation that we have that, is, that has become even more so now with the amount of dual nationals that we identify. You know, maybe it is, it is more ripe than others for something, for something like this. But if and when that moment happens, I do agree that it would be it would be good to have somebody who has a a history and an understanding and therefore a greater perspective and maybe even a greater respect for where we have come from because that glorious day when it comes it will be a celebration of everything that has come before while it will be in that moment and what we have become it will also be 
a celebration and a look back and a tip of a hat to everything that has come that has come before. All right. Anyway, uh, what well, I don't see that happening any uh, anytime soon necessarily. All right, Masi, what's the next question? All right. So next is an audio question. Okay. This gentleman did not leave his name. So I know you have kind of a, a dummy name that you assign to, to folks who don't uh, tell us who they yeah, are. Yeah, I call them Jim from Kalamazoo. Uh, so if you, I mean, look, please leave your name and tell us where you're from. I don't think that that's too much. I don't think we're prying. I don't think that's too much to ask for you to do that. Uh, but it was a good question. So we wanted to use it. So that's Kalamazoo, Michigan, where I believe Derek Jeter grew up. Yes, you are correct. It's uh, it's the other side of the great state of Michigan where where I grew up. I, meant, I went there many times to play uh, soccer wonderful wonderful place and so like i said if you don't leave your name and uh, where you're from i'm just going to call you jim uh from kalamazoo who called in on the uh on the hotline once again 657-549-2297 that's 657-549-2297 and he left us this question i thought was really interesting which is why i wanted to use it hey uh lexi and david uh i remember that on the podcast you guys used to do uh mossy makes the case uh maybe you guys can bring it back for this question that i have and it is uh, what do you believe is the hardest position to play today? Uh, is it goalkeeper? Is it attacking midfielder? Is it a fullback? What do you guys think that the hardest position is to play in the game today? Thank you, and I enjoy the podcast. Okay, so Jim from Kalamazoo. Great question. The Mossy makes the case thing. First off, let's uh, let's touch on that. For people that uh, are new to the show uh, or, or uh, over the last couple of years, since we weren't, we're doing things a little differently, uh, Mossy also had kind of a, a monologue type of moment during the show. And a lot of people liked it, including uh, yours truly. Is that something that you want to bring back, Mossy, or what? No. No. Okay. I, no. I know you're a fan of the monologue. I, I never liked that. Having to every week uh, pick out some topic that's worthy of this minute long spiel. It felt forced a lot of weeks. And I prefer to just break down games and tackle different topics in, in a more sort of conversational way. <laughs> I love you. I love you so much. Uh, okay, so I guess the uh, Mossy makes the case. I mean, look, you make your case plenty of times during the show. So we get enough uh, of good, good Mossy there that it's not in a much more um, formal type of setting. Uh, we can we can live with that. Jim from Kalamazoo, you're not going to get your wish in terms of uh, Mossy makes a case that coming back. But I think you will get your wish here in terms of the question that you asked, which is uh, relative to the the hardest position to play in today's game. And so I, I, I thought about this for a while. I and, and not because I'm a defender. OK, um, but I do think that defending is the hardest position to play in the modern game for a, a couple of reasons. Um, one, there has been so much focus focus and attention on those that score goals in this in the modern age where, you know, whether it's celebrity and attention and clicks and likes and followers and all that kind of stuff. The people that do the hardest thing, uh, which is to score goals in our game, get the majority of attention. And I'm not saying that that isn't historically something that is that has happened. But I think because of this instant gratification world in which we live in, the appreciation for those that that attack um, is, as like I said, instantaneous. And I think much more so than it just makes for it makes for better in this day and age video, uh, number one, a great defensive play is not something that is a must see that you're pulling up on your, uh, on your phone. And, and I, and so while as that, that has certainly always been the case, I just think that it is even more so uh, nowadays number. So that's number one. Number two, 
I think no position on the field has been, um, have the laws of the game affected more than the defenders on the field. So much so that you actually have defenders right now in the box defending with their arms behind their back. That's how fundamentally the game has changed because of, uh, because of the laws. And so things that you could do for decades, you, you don't do, and you have had to adapt and to adjust. And it has put you in a even more difficult position and a more challenging position with your arms behind the back. For example, I'm saying that, uh, number three, when it comes to the laws, and I guess this would apply too, is VAR. The ability to do things that you did for decades is out the window. And now you're having to second guess or just completely cut them out. And, you know, defending is not always about being perfect and pristine and or legal, shall I say. And so some of the dark arts that we often associate with defenders have had to, uh, you know, go away. So I, I think that I think the hardest position to play in the game today is along a back line. So a defending position. I don't know that it's the hardest position, but I'm fascinated by how goalkeeping has evolved yep. in the last 30 years because, you know, there there was a time, which I just barely caught, where a uh, goalkeeper didn't have to have any technical ability whatsoever. Somebody passed you the ball back, you could pick it up with your hands. And then already in the early 90s, they did the, the back pass rule where, okay, now a goalkeeper has to be able to play a little bit. Um, but and now in more recent times, we've seen this play out of the back craze where goalkeepers are being judged almost as much on their technical ability as they are on their shot stopping. And uh, so it's, it's a whole different element of the game that they have to work on. Now, if you're a goalkeeper coming up, you have to really make sure that you're, if you yeah, want to play at the highest level. You know? I would counter that with the fact that the goal area, the little, the, like the, the size of the goal has not changed. And yet the ability, the size of the goalkeepers, the athletic ability uh, has only gotten better. And so, um, and so that, so I think it's actually easier to play goalkeeper nowadays. Yes, to your point about uh, the feet, absolutely. But, you know, I, I, for, exa for example, I always talk about Tony Miola and his ability with his feet. I think Tony Miola would have much rather played in today's game uh, because he would have no problem playing out of the back and playing with his feet and all that kind of stuff. The goal hasn't gotten any bigger, so he can, he can save, the, uh, uh, save the ball. You know, the other thing that, that I mentioned when it comes to defenders is, the protection now that attacking players are afforded uh, within the laws of the game on a continual basis is night and day relative to, to when I was when I was playing. And so you have had to completely adjust your game where where in the past I could take a swipe at a player and at, at, at worst, unless there was protruding bone, I'd get a yellow card or something like that. Nowadays, you, you can't you don't get uh, a free whack at the uh, at the heels of a, uh, a defender you can't you can't do that anymore so i don't know i it's a it's a great question thank you for uh, for asking it jim from kalamazoo uh but let us know out there if you if you disagree with what i think which is the defender mossy i think you're leaning to the uh, the goalkeeper but or if you say hey listen it's still the most difficult thing to do in the game, which is score goals. Uh, and therefore, it is the hardest position to play in today's game, which is up top scoring goals. I disagree, but maybe you have that take. All right, what else, Mossy? Uh, last question. At Cesar Mania 1987, 
Uh, which MLS player do you think can win the entire Squid Games? Ooh, okay. We're back to this now. Luis okay. Aguilar and his Squid Games. So obsession. there might be those that, that haven't watched the Squid Game. I'm not going to give, give it away, but just in general, it is a collection of games that human beings play with some very dire and serious uh, repercussions if and when uh, you lose. But it, it requires not just physical ability, but more importantly, uh, mental ability. And, you know, like a lot of these games that we've seen with, you know, on television, these reality shows, survivors and that kind of stuff, uh, you have to you have to play the game. And, you know, sometimes people aren't what they say they are or what we think they are. Uh, let's see. Um, I think that someone like, let's see, uh, Dax McCarty, I think that he would be good at the Squid Games um, because I think he has a penchant for sussing out what he needs to do, sussing out people. I think he is an organizer and a leader, but I also think that he's sly and that he, he would lull you into a false sense of confidence. So that's one. Um, Let's see, Blanco, Sebastian Blanco up there in Portland. Um, I, I think that he would, you would underestimate him at your own peril. And I think a lot of people would underestimate him and he would, when all is said and done, be one of those last uh, people, people standing. And sometimes, you know, in these types of games, it's not, it's not the obvious, you know, uh, you know, obvious person relative to size or strength or something like that. Sometimes it's someone who's just, very quiet, doesn't say a whole lot, and uh, but but is strategizing and scheming behind the scenes. So I'm thinking of uh, of somebody else out there that might be like a like people would underestimate. Um, you know, someone like uh, Sasha Kleshin, who by the way scored a uh, penalty uh, for uh, the Los Angeles Galaxy this week. Who people look at him as, yeah, he's just kind of an older guy, just finishing out in the twilight of his career, and he'll come on every once in a while, but he has an accumulated knowledge. So yeah, there's, there's those are th uh, three guys right there. Uh, Do you have anybody? I've only seen the first three episodes, so all I can go off is, is who would be more adept to cut out a shape from a sugar cookie, because that's the last <laughs> episode I, I watched. Um, it's honeycomb, it's not a sugar cookie, it's, uh, a, it's a honeycomb, okay. Um, uh, but using this question as a jumping off point sure. for a little bit of an MLS chat, um, the MVP race is heating up. And I wanted to ask you yeah. about this because you've long had this criteria mm -hmm. that uh, you think the MVP is whoever scored the most, scored non-penalty goals in the most different amounts of games, correct? The most important and therefore the most valuable, because this is an MVP race, the most valuable thing in our sport is scoring goals. And so I first, my rules are, it's only goal scorers, so I don't give a crap how many assists you had. I don't care how many shutouts you had. doesn't matter to me, okay? It's only goal, scoring goals. That's the most important thing in our game and therefore the most valuable, okay? Uh, you cannot win a game, all right, unless you actually score a goal. So it's only goal scorers. That's, uh, that's number one. It's not, uh, okay, number two, um, you have to make the playoffs. In a league where over half the teams make the playoffs, I don't care how many goals you scored. If you weren't able to lead your team to the playoffs, then you don't count for me. And I look, I look and I, I know that this, there's people that disagree with me. And then third, like you said, it, it's not about how many goals you score for me in terms of the value. It's how many different games you score in. If I know walking on the field that because of this player's history, we are already basically up one nothing. That's incredibly valuable to me. And so that's so. 
so my, my good friend Paul Carr, uh, we've done this for years now, gosh, over the last decade, and he's already been texting me with uh, with where we are and stuff like that. He he calculates that for me uh, so that it, it spits out a number. Oh, and by the way, um, penalties don't count. They are a separate column, so I don't care how many goals you scored that are penalties. They don't count in terms of the games that you scored it. They don't count in the terms of the number of goals uh, that you scored. So those are my criteria when it comes to an MVP uh, in Major League Soccer. I've said this before, but Paul Carr is a better man than I am because a day I am not professionally obligated to uh, <laughs> answer your research requests. If you think you're going to just randomly call me up one day and hey, can you look up for me? Who he's actually who's he's actually taken it. So uh, let's see. This happened two weeks ago. It was. Shallowy, Bo, Buxa, Krylak, well, and Rui Diaz. The reason I bring it up is because the prohibitive favorite seems to be Carlos Hill, who, a man who has three goals, no but chance. 16 assists or no something this season. You don't buy it at all. He wouldn't even nope. be in your top 10 no. contenders. And yet he's probably going to win it. I'm not you, voting for him. Wow. Well, You're that locked into your criteria. Absolutely, yeah. Hey, hey. If MLS wants to give us criteria, then, then fine. Then we'll just plug it in and, uh, and we'll be done with it. But if you're going to make it uh, subjective and wide open, this is my criteria. So it. So who? who if so this was a couple weeks ago. I haven't. I haven't updated it uh, yet. But Daniel Shallowy um, from uh, Sporting KC, Bo, uh, Gustavo Bo, uh, Buxa also. Uh, so Shallowy was at number one then, Rui Diaz. And once it, like I said, it took out all of the, uh, the penalty goals and took out, uh, you know. Another guy whose candidacy is growing a little bit is my boy, João Paulo. But again, you think that's nonsense. He has three goals this season. It's all, it's a more sort of esoteric, but he's him being a two-way player who also helps Seattle's defense and he's up there in league and tackles and recoveries and addition to great it. great player. But I mean, MVP. MVP, nonsense. No, nonsense. Ridiculous. Oh, okay. Yeah, ridiculous. Um, all right. All right. Uh, <laughs> uh, well, Austin. Okay. So who do we have eliminated right now? So we're starting to separate out some things here. For me, the the, the big story for me is uh, you mentioned the Galaxy. There were two the last MLS chat we had. I mentioned there were two clubs that had been near the top of the standings of their respective conferences all season that were starting to fade to the point where I was going to wonder mm -hmm. about them making the playoffs. One was the Galaxy. The other was NYCFC. The Galaxy, as you mentioned, they stopped the bleeding with a 2-1 win over Portland. Kleshin with a late penalty. Chicharito also scored. Um, so that snapped a nine-match winless run. Gives them a little bit of breathing room. They're two points above the playoff line, so still <laughs> not in the clear, but uh, they feel better having won this game. The other team, NYCFC, cannot uh, solve their problems. Fourth straight game without a goal. They lose uh, to the Red Bulls in the Derby, and they're now level on points with the Red Bulls, which is amazing because the Red Bulls, earlier this season, we were talking about as being this complete train wreck while NYCFC was up there. At one point, they were number one in your power it's rankings. It's crazy. Kiss and of death. Kiss both of teams death. are now on the outside looking in. Uh, boy, NYCFC missing the playoffs, that would be a stunning development. Oh, that would be horrible for as good as they are. I mean, they cannot by a goal. They cannot put the ball in the goal. The soccer gods, because if you're, you know, if if you are a, a player or a coach on that team, you're looking around saying, uh, okay, we, we do everything, but we don't put the ball in the back of the net. And, you know, that's the most important thing. And they're not able to do that. So it would be an incredible failure. Um, and as far as I'm concerned, a, a disappointment, because I do like the way in which they play, but they have, uh, it was too much pressure. You know, I put them at number one, and it was too much pressure. And so I learned my lesson that while they are a good team, they are mentally soft because they can't handle the, uh, 
incredible pressure that comes from me anointing someone number one. Also, the Ian Joy factor, having to deal with him all season, I'm sure it drives him crazy. <laughs> and it just, it just wears you down over the course of the campaign. Let, let me let, let me hold on here. Let me pull up, uh, you know, the scores from 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 what happened this uh, this week. Like you mentioned, you know, there's some really interesting, uh, interesting stuff uh, going on. By the way, Montreal uh right now uh is is a story in and of itself that the fact that they are even you know a, a possibility here uh to make the playoffs and they are in right now seventh place right now um lafc yeah maybe i mean i i just think that they're coming to the end here and they're just right at the uh um, at, at the line here, Columbus just thumped Inter Miami. That's not a good look for Inter Miami. A continued not good look for Inter Miami, and this is about as bad as I have seen uh, Inter Miami. But with that win, you know Columbus, you know, just there's still three points, four points away from Montreal. It's going to be, it's going to be real. It's going to come down to the wire for a Columbus team that we know is uh, defending uh, champions. Uh, New England tied Chicago. And New England is, look, they're going to win the Supporters' Shield, but it's a matter of how many points they get. They're looking to possibly be historically the best uh, regular season ever, but this was not a good dropped points there against a, a Chicago team. Atlanta went up to Toronto and got themselves a win, but it's against Toronto, and Toronto's basically given up this, uh, uh, this season, and they are eliminated. The Nashville just keeps getting results, not necessarily wins. They keep tying people, and they did that in, uh, in D.C. Orlando went to Cincinnati and won, but it's Cincinnati, so is it really a win? I guess it is. Houston actually beat Seattle. Um, so this is MLS. This is kind of uh, what happens. The Loons beat Austin, but once again, it's Austin. So does it really count as a win? Um, and then you mentioned uh, the Galaxy and uh, the Red Bull game right now. But it's going to come down to the wire here, and I, and I love it. The uh, jockeying for positions and that music, as we say, is going to stop. And again, <laughs> there are going to be teams that don't make the playoffs that are pretty good. In both conferences, I think the top four and obviously that includes some teams that have clinched, so of course they're safe, but the, the top four in both conferences, I, I feel pretty good yep. about the fact that they're gonna make the playoffs. The drama really starts from five down, where you have just you know a, a couple of points in both conferences separating five from yeah. eight. I so. mean, five from 10 is, is five points. Uh, so with Atlanta at 42 and Colum Atlanta is at number five with 42 and Columbus at number 10 with 37. So that's the East, Eastern Conference is gonna be crazy. And then, you know, as I said, uh, Minnesota at 41 is the last team in for the Western Conference, but Vancouver's sitting there at 40 and LAFC is sitting there at uh, 37. I think everybody else is pretty much uh, uh, pretty much out of it. All right. Anyway, uh, we used that uh, Twitter question to get a little MLS uh, in because I know we kind of short uh, changed them this week. Anything else, Mossy? No, I better get home and watch the rest of Squid Games because evidently that's going to be the focus of this podcast. Listen, forward, get so. it done, my friend. Yeah. Okay, get it done. Um, all right, we're going to take another quick break. And when I come back, I will have my one for the road. Don't go anywhere. All right, we're back. And it's the end of uh, the State of the Union podcast here. And at the end of each and every pod, I give you my one for the road. Uh, this week... It's much more about the, not just the state of the union, but I guess the state of the union relative to the U.S. men's national team and this, this great divide that exists of MLS players and players playing um, most, for the most part uh, over in Europe. 
and the different factions and the different sides that we take relative to our national team. Our national team should be, and is, I believe, for the most part, representative of our country, uh, our great country. Where these, t these players play, to me, okay, it isn't irrelevant, it's part of their story. But ultimately, I want the national team to succeed. I don't care, ultimately, who is on the field and is, and is playing. Uh, I'm not gonna sit here and tell you that when a player that plays in Major League Soccer does well for the national team, it doesn't make me feel good. The reason it makes me feel good is that I know that in many people's mind, that player already is shaded or downplayed in terms of their ability, simply from the fact that they, that they make a living in, in Major League Soccer. But I think, especially over these last couple of windows, this, this separation, which I don't think is healthy, I don't think it's healthy for the game. I don't think it's healthy for the team, but I do understand it when it comes to how we look at our national team and the, the way we use it to kind of signal who we are as a soccer playing nation and the way we use Greg Berhalter's decisions and the conspiracy theories out there about him using MLS players or using players that play in Europe uh, or mandates about what he should uh, uh, shouldn't do. You know, Greg Berhalter's job is to get this team to win. All right. And he is going to put whoever he feels in that moment gives us, and I say us, the United States, the best chance of winning. I don't think he thinks for one minute about where that player is playing in terms of putting them uh, on the field. But I think it's getting to <laughs> almost unhealthy proportions when it comes to how we as an American soccer playing uh, soccer community look at our national team and separate out these, uh, these, two, these two groups. I think it's unfair to Greg Berhalter. I think it's unfair to the players involved. And I think ultimately it's detrimental to what I think we all want, which is success. And by no means am I saying that we can't have differing opinions when it comes to, you know, whether we think Greg Berhalter is a good coach or not, or whether he's making the right lineup choices. But the fact that a player plays in Europe relative to the fact that a player plays in Major League Soccer domestically, oftentimes that is used and armed and weaponized against either a coach or against that particular uh, player and how people view the team. And I think that it is, it is soiling the experience for some. And that's too bad because, you know, ultimately when a player puts on that shirt, yes, you are who you are underneath it, but ultimately you are representing that country and all of the good, bad, and the ugly and everything in between. And so I, I don't think that this is, I actually think that this is probably only going to get worse as we go along, but it's a troubling trend to see it out there. Um, once again, I don't 
I'm, I'm not necessarily surprised at it because of who we are and the unique aspect of us being American soccer fans. Um, but I, like I said, I don't think that it helps. And I think that uh, the less of it we have, the better off these players are going to be and the better off uh, our national team is going to be. And I just hope that whoever those 11 men are that go on the field and represent uh, the U.S., that they are given the benefit of the doubt, that they are supported, that they are judged for who they are as players in terms of kicking the ball as opposed to where they may play. And, you know, anyway, I was thinking about that as we as we continue to grow and evolve. And this isn't me judging. I guess it is me a little bit uh, judging, but I don't know. It's just something that while it has been around, I just feel like it is it has gotten to a point and grown to a, a point where I wanted I wanted to mention it. And uh, I hope I hope we don't have more of it going forward. But I fear that uh, that we will. Maybe this is just a logical progression and an evolution as we grow as a soccer playing nation and as our league grows and as our sport grows, but always with the inevitable compare and contrast with what happens around the world and all of the things that we talk about out there, our insecurities and our inferior, inferior, inferior inferiority complex that manifests in so, in so many different ways. I just hope that as we grew, it would be, there would be less of that. And what I'm seeing is that evidently there's more of that. And that's, uh, that's a little disappointing, but I have faith that maybe that can change as we go forward. Mossy, anything before we head out? That's it. Um, thank you for downloading and reviewing and subscribing and rating and doing all the different things that you do when it comes uh, to this podcast. Uh, as Mossy mentioned, uh, a lot of you are doing that, which is great. We are incredibly fortunate and privileged and thankful that so many do. Uh, keep doing that. Keep sending in your questions, whether it's Ask Alexi or using that hotline, 657-549-2297. Uh, all of you, Jim from Kalamazoo's out there, uh, do, do, do send us your name and <laughs> where you're from. It makes it a little bit more uh, personal, but we're getting some good questions out there. So keep doing that. We will uh, see you same time here next week. We got all sorts of action coming. Like Mossy mentioned, we got you know Champions League going on and uh, uh, the league's going on and Major League Soccer heating up as we get close to the playoffs here. So a lot of good stuff uh, happening. We also got uh, national team when it comes to the women's national team uh, coming up and Carly Lloyd's final lap, if you will, that I know we're going to talk a lot about going uh, and going forward. That next window is going to get here <laughs> sooner than we think. So uh, for those that want to scream and yell about Greg Berhalter and this team, you will have your chance soon enough. Uh, we'll see you here again next week. And until then, and as always, size the day. Yeah.